Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today in my interview with Dr. Brian Peterson, we discuss his new book entitled Thomas Sankara, A Revolutionary in Cold War Africa. The title is currently out with Indiana University Press. Dr. Peterson is an associate professor of history at Union College. He is also the author of his first book, Islamization from Below, The Making of Muslim Communities in Rural French Sudan, published in 2011. Dr. Peterson, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks so much for for having me on your podcast. Great honor. We are so excited to speak with you today about this important revolutionary figure. So let's get into the first question. How did you come to study African history, and how did you ultimately decide that you wanted to write about Thomas Sankara's life? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I uh, initially got interested in African history um, through through music um, and through uh, African culture, or at least as I understood African culture at age you know nineteen. Um, you know, I was an undergraduate uh, studying music and um, at University of California in Santa Cruz. And, you know, my teenage fantasy was to be a jazz musician. And I remember, you know, looking for courses in a catalog for anything that had, uh, you know, like Africa in the title. And I, I saw this course listing on African history. And it was a survey course taught by David Anthony. Um, uh, and he just really opened up my world to Africa. And I took most of his courses, you know, and he also taught courses on uh, African-American history. So he's very much, you know, sort of a transnational historian. He had a lot of interest in the broader diaspora. Um, and he's just a wonderful scholar, teacher, and human being. And so, you know, my first African history professor was very much, you know, in that sort of pan-African frame and exploring linkages between um, uh, Africa and the diaspora. And so since then, I, mean, I think I've, you know, just retained this sense of connection, you know, between Africa and the diaspora in my teaching and thinking. Um, and so, you know, uh, and then interesting, I mean, at the, ta- at the time, I was also studying uh, French history. And uh, the late Tyler Stovall uh, was actually uh, my advisor. I don't know if you know his work at all, but um, you know, he worked on race and um, immigration and, and uh, empire and things like that within the French context. And so my first two uh, history professors were uh, African-American scholars who were both really uh, uh, pushing the boundaries. You know, Tyler was pushing the boundaries of um, French history. Uh, David Anthony was pushing the the boundaries of African history, you know, sort of to put it more into conversation with um, the history of the, the diaspora. Um, and so then I ended up writing 
undergraduate thesis on a Pan-African sort of uh, topic, the Negritude movement in France um, under Tyler. And it was, it was actually a great moment because he was, um, at the time, you know, he was working on his book, uh, Paris Noir, which is a history of African-Americans in Paris. So we you know, had a lot of overlap in that area. Um, and then, you know, I started with a lot of other people there at UCSC. It was sort of the history of consciousness, you know, moment of the 1990s, you know, Hayden White, Angela Davis, James Clifford, those folks were all there. Um, took some classes over that was a huge shaping influence uh, in my my formative years. And then, you know, in 1998, uh, 1998, I went to to Africa for the first time to to Senegal and Mali for just like four months on this on a grant that I got. Um, and you know, the end result was that you know I came back uh, sort of having been converted to to being an Africanist because until that point, you know, working with Tyler, I was I was I was seeing myself more as a Europeanist, being you know, being becoming a French historian, um, and so so I came back from Senegal and Mali, convinced that you know okay I'm going to be an Africanist. This is really what I really want to do, and you know a lot of it had to do with my experiences there, um, and just really wanting to spend time there, learn about the history, the culture, um, and you know compared to my experiences in France, um, and nothing you know against the French, but I just felt really welcomed in Senegal, the host family that I was staying with um, there just took me in. There was this kind of warmth and um, openness and this, you know, in the energy in a place like Dakar, the music, the creativity, you know, the style and all of that really dazzled me. And so I came back to the States and I was like, okay, I'm going to study African history. Um, and, and, um, and so when I went to grad school and applied to PhD programs in African history, I was wanting to move in this, this other direction. And, uh, and also to do more oral history, because a lot of the French history at the time that, that focused on Africa was very much about, um, you know, like colonial discourse and policy and things of that nature. And, and so I kind of want to move beyond that. And, um, and then when I got to Yale to do my PhD, um, I really sort of dug into oral history, doing environmental agrarian history, all these other sorts of perspectives were brought into the research. And, and you know, the agrarian studies program that was there at Yale, Bob and Jim Scott and a bunch of others. And. And I didn't know anything about the agrarian world, you know, growing up in, in, in the Midwest and suburban metropolitan areas, you know, and didn't know anything about farming or animal husbandry or anything. So I, so I immersed myself then in, you know, in peasant studies, environmental history. And of course, um, then the African studies program at Yale was, it was an exciting time to be at Yale, just the incredible minds that were associated with that program. Um, and so those things really kind of reinforced my idea of, you know, Africana programs, um, being very interdisciplinary in approach. And um, so, but onto the question about uh, Sankara, I mean, I, um, you know, the first book that, that, I, that I wrote, which is my dissertation, you know, it was, it looked at Islam uh, in rural Southern Mali under French colonial rule. And it was, it was based very heavily on oral history and field work. And so I imagined doing something, um, you know, similar for my next project. I want to do sort of continue the story of Islamization into uh, the post-colonial period, focusing on the period from like 1960 to you know, mid-1990, somewhere around then. Um, and, and I just want to kind of expand the scale of that and do more of a comparative sort of case study on Western Burkina Faso, you know, bringing in chapters on Muslim-Christian um, relations. But, you know, that was the path not taken because um, then Mali, you know, fell into crisis in 2012. You know, you had the coup, you had the jihadist insurgency, all that was going on. And so that, that forced me to, to just, just to scramble and find another research project. And I just wasn't sure about doing field work in remote parts of, um, 
Mali at the time. And so I shifted my research to, to Burkina Faso, which was, which was peaceful and stable and tranquil at the time, although it was under the rule of Blaise Campari. So in my, the, my interest in Sankara actually went back to my undergraduate years and you know, reading his book of speeches. And, but I didn't really know anything about Burkina Faso. Um, and, and then on that first trip to, to Africa in 1998, I remember hanging out you know, at the French Cultural Center in, in Dakar. And there was just a lot of buzz in the air. It was 1998 World Cup year and um, meeting Senegalese youth and intellectuals and artists, filmmakers and such. And they were all, you know, talking about Sankara. And I was, you know, it had just been like the 10 year anniversary of his murder uh, in 1997. So there were like Sankara posters around and there's just this kind of vibe. And I, I started putting two and two together. I was like, oh, that's the book of speeches I was reading. Here's this guy. And so these, these folks, I mean, they had been, you know, like we say, university students when Sankara was in power in the 80s. And he was, you know, one of their great political heroes. And so, like, this is my first direct contact with Sankara's popularity in West Africa. And I could just see, you know, how important he was to their to their lives. And then um, a couple months later, I was in Mali and I was traveling um, from Segu to, uh, to Bamako on a hitchhike, uh, a ride with this Malian. Uh, he was actually an economist and he just, you know, gave me a ride to, to Bamako and, and as we're talking on the drive, you know, I, I learned that he was actually friends with Sankara, that they had actually been friends in France in the, in the 1970s when Sankara was was studying there uh, at, you know, at, 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 uh, at a commando training base in, in, in Pope, uh, France. And so so this economist and I, you know, we became friends, we hung out, and he would just share these Sankara stories. And so Sankara was now sort of coming to life through oral history and also through the words, you know, in this the statements of the, the young folks that I met in Dakar. And, and, and then this deepened over time, especially as I spent you know, more time there in rural areas uh, in Mali and just kept hearing more and more stories about Sankara. And then I realized like, oh, wow, okay, this, this is like something very, very interesting. Um, and, and so I began shifting in that direction to do a book on Sankara. Um, and initially the, the idea was that not actually a Sankara book, but actually the, the first idea was actually a book of the revolution, sort of a history from below you know, grassroots study of the revolution. That's what I initially was planning on doing in 2012 when I began the research. Uh, you know, I just wanted to see how far the revolution sort of, um, uh, you know, like penetrated into rural areas and what it looked like, how it was understood, those sorts of things. And and I, I had those sort of research methods from doing this grassroots Islamization story based on lots of oral history. And so I was applying that to the study of this revolution. But, you know, like the more I spoke with people, you know, the more my research just was kind of veering towards Sankara because, you know, he was just, you know, he was the centerpiece of the revolution and it's just unavoidable. Like every time I would you know, talk to people, they were talking about Sankara and I was like, enough, enough, you know, but then eventually I just kept listening and recording interviews and it was like, okay, you know, um, there was really nothing written on him in English at the time, you know, aside from his book of speeches. And, and so I just thought, you know, that's kind of odd, you know, that there's this incredibly popular African leader who's, so important to many Africans, um, and yet historians hadn't written on like literally he was relegated to the footnotes. So, you know, so that's how it started. And then, and then as I met, obviously his family and friends, that just kind of pulled me further in that direction. To okay, can, I'm like now I'm doing a biography, not a study of the revolution. So, yeah, that was the 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 genesis of the project. And I think that uh, we see a lot of these uh, kind of like lenses in the actual book. We see like your um, kind of like. Uh, analysis of um, environmental crisis. We see your analysis of how culture informed the revolution. So we see a lot of the um, the things from your early, like kind of like academic life appear in this book. So moving to our next question, um, how does one write 
a history of a revolution? How does one tell the story of a revolutionary life? Um, can you tell us about some of your research experiences um, and elaborate on some of the historiographical debates about Sankara's life that your work is engaging? Yeah, I mean, when I when I started the research um, then, uh, ten years ago, uh, twenty twelve, I, I you know, Campari was still in power, um, and you know, I should mention that after October 15, nineteen eighty seven, when Sankara was assassinated, I mean. Kampare and his military clique, I mean, they really sought to destroy Sankara's legacy, you know, the memory uh, of this, this guy. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, I mean, the new regime just, you know, tried to erase him from history. And so, um, you know, writing that kind of history had obviously some challenges. I mean, African political biographies are already, you know, somewhat difficult in the sense that they're very different from the kinds of biographies that you might read about uh, Western political elites or artists or intellectuals, you know, where you have, you know, these massive, you know, volumes that are based on, you know, all kinds of personal papers, letters and memoirs and um, you know, presidential archives and libraries, all those things, you know, they just simply don't exist, right, for most uh, biographers of uh, African political leaders. Um, so, so that was challenging, just not having that sort of normal, you know, like toolkit. Um, and then, you know, in Sankara's case, obviously, you know, researching, uh, a murdered head of state. I mean, that made it further more complicated just because, you know, the guy who orchestrated his murder was you know, still sitting on the throne there in Ouagadougou. Um, you know, and, and, and there wasn't a whole lot in the paper trail. So, I mean, there were journalistic accounts. These were useful. Um, I read all the media reporting that I could find um, and local press accounts in Burkina Faso, the foreign press. Um, and there were some books that were written about Sankara during the 1980s, but there wasn't really much of a historiography as such. Uh, they, the books weren't, they were written by journalists. Um, they're sort of um, kind of like amateur history writing, which was very, very informative and very, very useful because of all the anecdotes and very insightful because it gave like African perspectives, for example, because most of these books were written by um, uh, Burkinabe, they're in French and things like that. And so, but they weren't like, you know, sort of uh, history books, you know, with, you know, the same kinds of footnoting and sources and things like that. But they're still very useful. But I wanted to go beyond that, too, because they could also be very hagiographical. Um, so so then, you know, I started doing interviews and and, and the project um, that I was talking about before, about doing this kind of history from below approach to the revolution that then informed how I was, how I was researching the biography in terms of talking to people who were, had been, you know, like grassroots activists and things like that to get this sort of more popular perspective on him. And then that moved me more in the direction of, you know, getting to know um, some of his closest friends and family. And so, and then once I made contact with, you know, Sankara's family and that really, you know, they took me in and, and just kind of, you know, the doors were opened and I was, you know, just able to spend a lot of time with them socializing, sharing meals, and <clears throat> listening to music, watching soccer and stuff like that. And just, and so a lot of what I learned about Sankara then as a person, you know, was absorbed through that immersion, you know, in the family culture and hanging out with them. And, and it just seemed that, you know, every, every one of them had their sort of um, you know, slice of the story, their, their piece of the puzzle. And so, you know, my task at that point was just really like just listening carefully. And then when they allowed it to record interviews and, but I was still getting this kind of view of, you know, because there are those self-representations in revolutionary processes, especially revolutionary heroes who become, you know, iconic figures. Um, and so I was trying to, you know, sort of guard against that, um, that sort of hagiographical tendency. And so I tried to then research more and more people who were 
maybe had some more critical distance, you know, so I interviewed a lot of people from, you know, activists and journalists to um, U.S. diplomats, for example, um, aid workers, other foreigners who were there. And, and then they had their anecdotes, their memories, the people who had lived there during the revolution, but maybe who were not, you know, sort of maybe in favor of the revolution. They may have been sympathetic, but they were witnessing it. So, so I ended up doing just about uh, over a hundred interviews of just di- a wide range of people um, to get these different um, kinds of testimonies and, and, and dip- achieve this kind of balance of perspectives, even, you know, when I had conflicting accounts. Um, uh, and then, you know, there wasn't much, uh, like I said, in terms of the paper trail, the National Archives in Wakajibu didn't have much documentation. Most of the stuff was destroyed um, or wasn't available. Um, and then when I was interviewing one of the U.S. ambassadors who had been there from 1984, 1987, he just kind of you know, casually mentioned, oh, have you, you know, consult, have you submitted a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act? you know, request for documents on Sankar. And I was just like, I hadn't even thought of it because, you know, working in the French archives and different sort of modality, and different sorts of sources, I didn't really know, you know, the U.S. National Archives sort of research, all that kind of stuff. And he's like, yeah, because, and all that stuff was classified. It wasn't available. And he's like, yeah, just you know, put in a request. I was like, okay, I'll try that. So, and he was certain there would be stuff because obviously he'd been one of the individuals who'd been sending and receiving hundreds of cables, uh, containing, you know, our material. So I submitted the request, you know, in 2014. And then within a couple of years, started receiving, you know, thousands of pages of embassy cables from all over the world with stuff on Sankara, you know, it had all been classified stuff. And then, so then they went through the declassification process. Most of it had been, you know, either confidential or secret levels. And, and that included a lot of incredibly important information just on the events, rumors, um, things that were going on during the revolution. I mean, like daily reporting on what was happening in in the country. And so that, you know, provided kind of the the largest, I think, you know, extant archival documentation available on him right now. I I don't know what's in the French sources. I'd love to to know. Um, And um, yeah, so that, uh, that, those were the sources that I I drew upon. And it it was, yeah, I mean, there were challenges just, you know, because like I said, I mean, Kampara was still in power and then uh, things got easier once he was overthrown in October of 2014. He was exfiltrated to Cote d'Ivoire, you know, with French help, um, you know, but then even after he was overthrown, it, it was still fraught, you know. I mean, I remember in early September of 2015, um, things were getting tense again. Uh, and the first uh, post Kampara election was scheduled for November 2015. And, you know, the, the, there was a tribune, military tribunal that was investigating Sankara's murder had initiated the process and they were about to announce charges on uh, September um, 17th uh, uh, 2015 that is and and arrest warrants were being prepared and so in the day and I was there and days before you know uh, you know leaving Waga then one of Sankar's closest friends a guy named Valère Somme he called me desperately you know on the cell and he was like and I'd spent a lot of time with Valère you know he was a very important actor in the revolution and he was like you know, freaking out he called me in a panic and he's like you know told me that someone that I interviewed, a military guy, had been killed. And he was like convinced that something was being prepared, like a coup or something. And he warned me, he's like, your life is in danger, Brian. You know, you need to get out of the country. He's like, go straight to the airport, pack up your data, your computer. They'll try to steal your bag, your computer. They might come out of the crowd and kill you. And I was like, what? You know, I was completely freaking out. And, and, and you know, and then and so I was backing up my stuff on thumb drives and grabbing my stuff and getting on a taxi in the airport. And on the way, the taxi suddenly stops. And the driver's like, there's something wrong with the engine. I was like, what? And so I thought, you know, started you know, worrying. It was dark. There was nobody around. Um, and well, then eventually I tried to stay calm. And the, the car you know, eventually got running again and made it to the airport. And I just barged in into the, the crowds as Valera told me to do and got inside the airport. And a week later, 
Gilbert Diendere, the man who organized the assassination team that killed Sankara, staged a coup on September 16th, like the day before the arrest warrants were about to be issued, right? You know, so, you know, so this led to another mass insurrection. Eventually, Diendere, you know, gave up and was arrested, all that. But it, it just, the incident just really hit home. Just it made me aware of how important, um, you know, Sankara's biographies, assassination were to the political situation. Um, yeah, so that's a um, little bit of a sort of background of the Of course. Research. Still a living history. Yeah. Um, so let's let's start talking about Sankara. Um, his formative years took place during the time of decolonization. And, in, and you show that in many ways he was like this second generation um, of anti-colonial radicalism. And he looked up to anti-colonial luminaries like Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nyerere, and Samora Michelle. Um, but he also refined his anti-colonial perspective to critique the limits and errors of their leadership. Um, can you explain to us how this like backdrop um, of his like formative years um, and it's this backdrop of a decolonization unfulfilled? How did that shape his um, politics? Um, and a follow-up to that is how do you describe his political orientation? Should we understand him as Marxist, socialist, pan-Africanist? Um, how should we think about him? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. Um, and I think it it's, you know, it was like a work in progress, like any uh, individual. I mean, his political thinking evolved over time and he was, you know, shaped by all the different forces, local, regional, global, intellectual currents and things like that. And, um, you know, Sankara had formal education within the French system and, you know, his, you know, generation was really the first to see um, that kind of education opened up to a broader segment of the population, which included women, ethnic minorities, you know, within Burkina Faso and, and within Upper Volta, as it was called at the time. Um, he was born in 1949, I guess I should mention. Um, so that's the generation we're, we're thinking about. Um, and, you know, I think the, the family roots, you know, in the Catholic Church were very important. Um, you can see that in his embrace of liberation theology, for example, something that people sometimes don't realize um, was very important to him just in terms of his moral positioning. Um, but I think his specifically anti-colonial, um, you know, radicalization, that was you know, in many ways, it was actually nurtured by the French academic environment, you know, ironically, where his own teachers, French, but also many African teachers, were um, exposing students to, you know, leftist ideas and literature during, you know, the heyday that, of decolonization. Um, so like you mentioned, you know, those, those revolutionary idols, you know, these are his role models, people like Nkrumah and Lumumba and Sacred Touré, and of course, later on, you know, Nyerere and such. Um, you know, the, you know, it, I mean, and it's interesting because, you know, like his classmates, you know, that I spoke with, um, you know, they said that it was actually the, the faculty members who were the ones who were most decisive in radicalizing them as teenagers, you know, so it's seems contradictory, but these colonial schools and you know, later neo-colonial institutions, I mean, they really provided uh, these tools that young Africans then, you know, appropriated and, you know, put to good use in critiquing the colonial system. Um, yeah, then I, then I'd say the, the, you know, Sankara, he grew up in a mil- in military camps because his dad w- had been a, a soldier in World War II. And he was working as a colonial guard and military nurse. Um, you know, so he lived around these African soldiers who had fought overseas, you know, in places like you know, Algeria and Vietnam or French Indochina. They um, witnessed these kind of peasant wars, these you know, revolutionary um, armed struggles of, of, of people, you know, seeking liberation. And so all of that, you know, and um, you know, stories about colonialism, about 
you know, massacres, forced labor, all those things. And those things, you know, just really entered his mind and made him uh, truly anti-imperialist, you know, from when he was a kid. Um, that's powerful, you know, politicization. Um, and I think that came first. And then, you know, part of that was obviously, you know, Pan-Africanism because a sense of pride in seeing African leaders who were leading their countries to independence, people like Nkrumah, uh, that sort of Pan-Africanism of that generation was a big, you know, um, inspiration to him. Um, and then, you know, just then, then I think that, that his sense of um, like opposition to injustice, that was just, it was just further nurtured then, as I mentioned, by the church. Like he had this really strong sense of just confronting wrongs, you know, standing up against you know, oppression. And that's a thread that really continues. Um, I think the Marxist part came uh, a little bit later when he was at military academy. And that's in Ouagadougou. And he met, excuse me, one of his revolutionary fathers, this guy named Adama Touré, who taught history. And he was a, a member of this uh, clandestine communist party, the PAI, the African Independence Party. Um, and, and he used history you know, courses to sort of educate these young you know, military cadets along the you know, leftist lines. And, and so, you know, ironically, in this neocolonial institution then that was you know, really designed to sort of, you know, groom these, um, you know, uh, military leaders that would be, you know, favorably, you know, uh, disposed, predisposed vis-a-vis -vis France. I mean, these military cadets, I mean, they were reading Marx's Communist Manifesto, the works of Lenin, you know, they were learning about the history of revolutions, about anti-colonial resistance. So those things were all very, very important. And then, you know, and then later on, I mean, uh, sort of the next phase or post-1968, uh, let's say, I mean, you know, Sankara was uh, fresh out of military school, uh, he would, and then he went to do some advanced training in Madagascar. And so then for the next four years in Madagascar, he had uh, some direct experiences with uh, rural revolution. When there was a Maoist uprising uh, that spread across Madagascar while he was training there. And before he left, he spent a year with this um, Malagasy unit. It was called the Green Berets that was um, involved in rural development. So the first time he saw the potential role like of the military development projects. Um, and so that inspired, and that really provided sort of a template for what he would try to accomplish in Burkina Faso during the revolution is using the military in that capacity, not for fighting, but for actually you know, mobilizing people. Um, and so that's, you know, one side of it. And then he, you know, his, his colleagues, you know, his military friend, I mean, his, his civilian friends, um, a lot of them, his closest friends, people like Valère Somay and Fidel Toe and some of these others, they were, you know, in the, the university milieu, you know, of post-1968. And so they were turned on to you know, Marxist thought, to sort of um, third worldist thought, as it was called, and they're involved in student activism and those kinds of politics. And um, and so then when Sankara returned from Madagascar, you know, with this new kind of understanding of uh, civilian, you know, uh, military collaboration and development, he he got together, you know, clandestinely, you know, at first, you know, joining with these leftist groups, civilian groups. And, and you know, so I think that, you know, yeah, he was drawn then, during that period of the 1970s, more to the kind of third worldist ideas, socialism, national liberation movements. Pan-Africanism was obviously still very strong for him. I mean, in later in life, he would actually then move closer to Pan-Africanism in the sense of, you know, you know calling for African unity and, and confronting certain challenges, whether it was opposing debt repayment or whatnot. But, but he was also starting to get inspired more and more by revolutionary experiences like in, in Cuba, for example. And he had eventually a very close friendship with um, Castro. So, 
I mean, his internationalism was, was very eclectic in that sense, that he was drawing on all these, these influences and he was responding to, to history as it was happening during the 60s and 70s and um, early 80s. Great. And let's talk about how, yeah, kind of like this, uh, just like all of the things that are gestating, like all of these ideologies that are gestating informs um, his uh, kind of like understanding of upper volta politics um, in advance of the August 4th revolution. Can you paint a picture of, of uh, paint a picture for us um, kind of like of what internal politics are like during this period? Who, what is the work that needs to be done? Who are the major parties and players? Um, who's in Sankara's inner circle? Who are his friends and his comrades? And what's their role in bringing the August 4th revolution to pass? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, without going through all the sort of the, the permutations of, of the, the parties from uh, 1960, I'll just say that on, on the eve of the revolution, you know, things were things were already moving, you know, in a progressive direction. Um, and, and as you suggest, it wasn't just Sankara. There was a whole generation of um, uh, progressive military officers who were around him. He has a corps around him who are all kind of moving in that direction. Of, it was these young military officers, mostly captains. People like Henri Zango, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lingani, Abdul Salam Kabure, obviously Blaise Compaoré, and so you have this younger generation of military officers who want to move uh, upper volta, as it was called at the time, in this progressive direction. But you know, French neocolonial power is still there, um, and so you had this old guard in the military, um, and the political class really kept limiting any kind of change. And so, I mean, Sankara was actually in government. You know, obviously, it was obviously first as a military officer, and then he was brought in as a secretary of information. And then later he was prime minister. And so even before the revolution begins and the coup, you know, supported by this social uh, movement, uh, he was in the government. And, and I mean, just to, to, as a reminder, I mean, the country had been under military, under, under military head of state since 1966 with uh, Sangure Um And, you know, Sankara was arrested a couple times, you know, for seeking to radicalize things. And, um, and, you know, but as long as the neocolonial old guard, you know, sort of, was still in power, I mean, nothing was going to change. Um, and, you know, there's a sense that, you know, Sankara brought into, you know, he, he was, I think they were trying to appease the youth. I mean, they realize the volatility of the youth at the time, especially in, in urban areas as across Africa. Right. Um, and there was a concern about that. Um, and so they, they started to bring him more and more into government to try to appease the youth to say, hey, you know, we're kind of progressive, but really still maintaining this neocolonial order of things. Um, so, but what Sankar and his colleagues, then they began to push on a certain direction. Um, and, and, and Sankara began to cultivate, you know, ties with the civilian friends on the left, people like Valère Somay and Fidel Toei and the labor leader, Samuel, uh, Suman Touré, uh, his former history professor, Adama Touré, these were you know, leaders in, in this, another leftist group called LIPA, the Democratic, um, I'm sorry, the Patriotic League for Development, uh, that was led by this guy named Philippe uh, Wudrago and Arba Jallo and Masu Gisu. These are some of the names that people who are in the civilian left who had these different political parties. Uh, and so he had these different leftist political groups, mostly Marxist-Leninist parties, you know, of uh, varying stripes and ideologies, but all anti-imperialist, right? And so what Sankara did was then to bring these groups together with the military you know, with the progressive uh, young officers into this uh, united block. And so you had the left-wing labor unions, the student organizations, the urban workers, um, the intellectuals, the 
journalists, the university students, um, civil servants. And so they're brought together, you know, really by Sankara's magnetism. I mean, it's, it's true. He had remarkable charisma and leadership. And so people were, he was the kind of the focal point. He was the person who brought these groups together. And, you know, even though he was a soldier, you know, he was um, very well read, uh, intellectual in that sense. You know, he spent many hours studying and reading and hanging out with the, the civilian leftists. Um, and so then at a crucial moment, you know, when, um, uh, you know, he began to make these more kind of strident anti-imperialist speeches, you know, criticizing the political elites, you know, for corruption, you know, like he really was, you know, going out on a limb, you know, and attacking the president, you know, as a neo-colonial stooge. Then he's arrested on May 17th, 1983, you know, with French backing, right? Um, and, you know, so the government arrested its own prime minister for, for making speeches, right, to the youth. And so the result is this massive demonstration in Upper Volta. I mean, the largest demonstration that we know of in, in the history of the country. P- massive people poured into the streets to support, uh, I mean, to protest uh, Sankara's arrest to support him. Um, and this is just a couple of days, this is May 20th. Um, and so the people mobilized and all the different social forces, the different political parties, again, the labor unions, the students, you know, they all sort of came together. And then Sankara's eventually, you know, is released from prison. And but then the social movement just kept growing over that summer of 1983, you know, until August 4th, 1983, then when these progressive military officers were ready to take power, you know, because they had full backing from the civilian left, right? They could mobilize hundreds of thousands of people, maybe that's an exaggeration, but tens of thousands of people in Ouagadougou at least. Um, and and just to say also that the yeah, there was a military coup that took power, but the civilian leftist parties actually played actual you know operational roles in taking power right so the pod pai the ulc as it's called another leftist party led by valer so i mean they played operational roles and so they took power with you know sankara's core of uh military colleagues and you know and the 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 and just you know so then when they took power i mean it's important i think to point out too that that sankara's childhood friends you know his classmates his military colleagues they all took power together right um, and, you know, the challenge then was keeping this coalition together. Uh, and actually the main reason the revolution ended then was you know, the fact that after the military <clears throat> click pushed the civilians aside um, and consolidated power, they, they just no longer really felt compelled to pursue this truly uh, progressive agenda. So the exception was Sankar, who really never stopped fighting for this progressive vision. But many of these his military colleagues, well, they eventually got more comfortable with power and began pulling away from the true revolution. And so once they kind of marginalized the civilians, it made it easier to keep you know, pushing things in that direction. So, um, but that's the sort of the coalition that came together. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, the the revolution and kind of like the birth of Burkina Faso. Um, at you say at the helm of this revolution is a people's president. Tell us what you mean by that. And just more about the revolutionary government once it got into power, um, and the and its policies um, under Sankara, um, especially like amidst the broader context context of um, environmental crisis in the region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so in terms of policy, I mean, Sankara, I mean, he really you know got down to business right away. I mean, he yeah he wasn't wasn't there for the wealth for the parties for the the power and things like that. I mean, he was, you know, he's driven to drag his country out of poverty and it was a time of the, the Sahel drought, you know, as you mentioned, and, you know, so people were dealing with um, serious scarcity. I mean, you know, famine in, in 
especially in, in the parts of uh, the northern parts of the country. Um, so his you know main objective you know was to you know as he said you know, to assure that every citizen had two meals a day and enough water and that you know, might not seem dramatic you know uh, exciting to most people you know uh, but you know it was like like the ecological crisis was absolutely at the center of things and you know so but you know the the ability to feed the population I mean that required um, other changes. And one of them was, you know, a war on corruption so that the state would have the, the, the resources to meet, you know, the demands of the population. So, you know, within a year of the revolution, um, you know, corruption was uh, basically you know, wiped out, you know, through these popular revolutionary tribunals. You know, you had um, political elites, business leaders that were brought before these tribunals and were sort of named and shamed. Um, I mean, the punishments were usually pretty light. Uh, but these tribunals were ongoing, and that really cut to the root of the problem. Um, and so Sankara was trying to eliminate, you know, the privileges of, of, of the urban elites, mainly the civil servants. Um, you know, one of the, 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 the pillars of the revolution then was redistributing resources, you know, re, or redirecting um, resources away from urban areas to, to rural areas. And so, you know, when Sankara came to power, I mean, the state was using 60% of the budget in paying civil servants in the capital city. Uh, and, and many of, you know, and many of them weren't really doing jobs. Some of them were actually deceased, but their relatives were still, you know, getting a salary. You know, and then 20% was used for paying uh, for interest on debts, right? So you had, you know, 80% of the state's funds that were used in those ways. Um, very little was left over for, you know, social programs, healthcare, things like that. Um, but, you know, Burkina Faso, I mean, it's largely peasant society and, um, the, you know, the millions of, um, you know, cotton producing peasants, I mean, they were the, the backbone of the economy. Um, and so Sankara thought that, that peasants, you know, they deserved a little more of, of the national pie than the, the, the civil servants, about 30,000 civil servants, which is you know, less than 1% of the population. And, you know, they were in sort of guarding their privileges, you know, filling up their cars with gasoline at state expense, you know, running their air conditioners, you know, overstaffing their offices with their family members. So, you know, he thought that they could take a pay cut. They could lose a few privileges. And on average, they lost the equivalent of a month of pay. So it wasn't like devastating to them, you know, so they lost a month of pay and they lost, you know, certain, uh, you know, privileges like, you know, uh, uh, you know, having their housing paid for, gasoline, things like that. So, so the resource that were saved and they were used um, to uh, for small scale rural development projects, you know, digging wells, you know, building healthcare clinics, schools, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, they built small scale irrigation works, kind of like, like little dams, um, popularized uh, you know, agri- new agricultural techniques that made better use of water. And so, you know, from eighty three to eighty five, Burkina Faso was still depending on food aid, you know, like from Western donors. By the end of 1986, the country was uh, self-sufficient in food. So they actually managed to do that. It took some time, um, you know, and, and I mean, for the, the revolutionary leadership, I mean, they viewed, um, you know, what they were doing as, as democratic, I mean, in terms of serving the interests of the people. They didn't have national elections. They had elections for the, the, the revolutionary defense committees, these sort of grassroots structures. Um, and so, you know, when they talked about you know, democracy, it was more sort of uh, radical democracy, I guess you could say, in terms of you know, what the state was doing for the people and direct 
participation of the population in in the projects and policies and um, but you know but another dimension to that political system was this relationship that Sankar had with the people and that was a more direct relationship more kind of you know non-institutional I guess you could say relationship between <clears throat> Sankara and and the people um, they call that populism or whatever but and in many ways that sort of framed uh, governmental responsiveness, you know, to people's needs, to their demands, you know, um, because Sankara was someone who you know, he spent a lot of time meeting with peasants, traveling around the country, you know, holding like town hall sort of meetings, um, responding to their letters, you know, really trying to get the views of, of ordinary people. So, you know, you contrast that with most political leaders at the time, um, you know, who just sort of walled themselves in, right, and use the security forces to just, you know, to barricade them in. Uh, but he was out there, you know, he had an instinct to really connect with the people, to understand, you know, their aspirations, their needs and things like that. So, you know, he had that democratic aspect of his populist style. And that was something that I think sheds light on the responsiveness of um, the state. Yeah, that was one of the striking things for me. It was really remarkable to kind of read about um, his his like belief and commitment to the idea that the revolution can be edited. edited. Um by the people, like kind of like as it was happening. Um, so like, you know, the idea that collective reflection, collective reflection, um, like in a popular kind of like forum or fashion actually refreshes the radicalism of the revolution, um, which I thought was, yeah, one of the cooler um, things about uh, reading about him. Um, let's spend some time on the revolutionary visions that the CRN, which is the National Council for the Revolution, um, that the government aspired to cement in terms of gender and culture. And the first question I have for you within this is, how did culture um, as music, as sport, as theater um, advance the goals of revolution? Or what role did Sankara see culture playing? Um, and the second is if you can elaborate further on Sankara as a feminist, as a womanist, tell us more about his gender politics. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, Sankara, he, I mean, he always thought, you know, in many interviews and that, that you were express this idea that, you know, the most important long-term project and, you know, arguably the most difficult too was, was to try to raise political consciousness, um, you know, so he talked about you know, transforming mindsets or decolonizing mentalities, sort of the phrase. Um, and I guess, I mean, I guess it's kind of a Marley-esque, you know, quality to it, liberating oneself from you know, mental slavery, you know, the revolution of the, in the mind, that kind of thing. And so he, you know, he thought that people were, you know, um, you know, like too obsessed with Western culture, you know, what he called neo-colonial habits. You know, he thought that people had to be liberated from these habits, right? Like he didn't, um, you know, he didn't call for like banning Western movies or you know, any of that sort of nonsense, but, you know, he made the argument that people, you know, had to be proud of who they are, are to, you know, they had to invest in their cultural institutions to share with each other in the world, you know, their musical traditions, their cultural traditions. Um, and, you know, music, for example, was, was very important. I mean, they, there were different revolutionary music groups, you know, groups for women, groups for the youth and so on. Uh, they would perform across the country. You know, they were really, really central to this this, this new revolutionary culture. Um, you know, in this period also saw you know an explosion in film with the Fespaco you know festival, the Pan African uh, Film Festival. That was actually the biggest film festival in Africa, and that really took off. You know, uh, with Sankara playing a powerful, um, animating uh, role in that. And 
there was, you know, the embrace of, you know, like a new style of dress, the Paso Danfan, which is traditional sort of homespun you know, style of clothing as a way of promoting their identity, you know, and then as um, a way of you know, kind of breaking with these neocolonial habits. Um, and also promoting, you know, like local handicraft, textile, uh, te the textile industry, uh, that really helped women, for example, they were the main, you know, weavers and producers of these cloth, cloth. Uh, and and it's sport too, you know. As you mentioned, I mean that was part of it, and it's somewhat an unusual thing. I mean, Sankara, I mean he's been a long lover of, of sports, especially uh, soccer um, and cycling and long distance running and things. And and so the state actually made a policy that, that you know, like every Monday and Thursday afternoon, you know, uh, workers would get off early around four o'clock and they would go exercise and play sports. Like a state directed policy, like Monday and Thursday afternoon, you go and exercise. You know, Sankar himself would be out there, you know, in the public playing soccer and, you know, handball, riding his bike around, you know, just kind of leading the example. And, you know, people loved it. <clears throat> people I spoke with, they loved it. I mean, some of them, you know, didn't want to have to do this after working all day. They didn't want to go exercise, just want to go, you know, kind of loaf around. But, but you know, but the goal was to encourage people to, you know, take their destiny, you know, in their hands, as they, they said, you know, to um, learn self-discipline, to take care of their health, you know. Um, and, of course, um, you know, that that would also improve the esprit de corps of, of, of citizens. Um, in terms of, you know, gender, I mean, it was a huge priority of, of, of Sankara. Um, you know, women were, were very much at the center of the revolution. And, you know, he didn't just pick up feminism as a sort of uh, like gimmick, you know, to win points with international observers, like you know, heads of state oftentimes do. Um, you know, he really believed in and fought for gender equality. And it, I mean, it actually cost him in terms of political capital, right? Because it was actually one of the most contentious issues of the revolution. I mean, most men in Burkina Faso, I mean, they just like rejected a lot of this, right? I mean, even those in his inner circle, people that I spoke with, you know, among the revolutionary leader, leader leadership, sorry, were against this. They were just like, oh, he was going too far, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, yeah, I mean, and the thing about Sankar, I mean, and why people viewed him as a man of integrity. It's just that he, he, you know, he walked the walk in so many ways, you know, many of his core attributes and the goals of the revolution, you know, stem from that drive to combat injustice. And, you know, he just couldn't bear seeing injustice and not doing something about it. So whether it was a poor peasant or it was women, you know, he was just motivated to, to fight for them. And, and so there are a lot of different policies that were implemented to, to liberate women, to protect women, to empower women. You know, there was like a, 30%, you know, quota for all government offices to be occupied by women. You know, see so a 10 of the 30 provinces that had women serving as high commissioner, sort of like a governor, um, you know, among the 10 civilian ministers, three were women. So, you know, and women were very visible in the, the revolutionary popular culture. I mean, they, they were brought into the military. They were really given a high profile. And, um, you know, so in addition to the lofty speeches about women's liberation that, that most people know who study Sankar, I mean, there was just, this is reality on the ground in terms of policy. And, uh, you know, and so his, his view, I mean, it carried, you know, the most moral authority, obviously, in the country, you know, but then, I mean, on the other hand, you know, women were sometimes caught between, you know, the sort of feminist head of state who was getting ahead kind of of everyone else and the local political structures, you know, because he had entrenched interests and in that sort of inertia of the chieftaincy, for example. And so, and so women were, you know, they were out there fighting. A lot of them made huge sacrifices. Um, women that I spoke with who, you know, who had been living in France, who had a career in France, they're working as lawyers and so on and so forth. They had their kids. There, a lot of them just left their lives behind in France and places like that 
moved out to rural areas to get involved in it. And um, yeah, so. Well, let's, um, let's talk, let's shift to talking about anti-imperialism and uh, sort of what um, anti-imperialism looked like in foreign and domestic policy um, for the revolution. Um, And in this broader, like, international context of the late Cold War, the, like, increased encroachment um, of neocolonialism into African economies, um, where did revolutionary Burkina Faso fit in the world order? um, And which governments uh, did uh, the revolutionary government seek friendship or solidarity with? Yeah, I mean, when Sankara and, you know, his group... um, took power I and mean, they initially actually thought about calling the revolution an, you know, an anti-imperialist revolution. And then they, they settled on this phrase, democratic and popular revolution. Um, but anti-imperialism was at the core um, uh, of their mission, you know, just in terms of liberating the country from French neocolonial uh, control, you know, standing against um, imperialism in its different forms uh, across the world and, you know, standing up to uh, sort of new imperialism, to domination of smaller countries by, you know, militarized capitalism, propping up regimes, you know, like the apartheid regime in South Africa, you know, regimes were backed by French or the U.S. and so on. Um, But I'll just, you know, I'll add also that Sankara, I mean, in this group, I mean, they also criticized like Soviet imperialism. I mean, they were just as critical of, you know, like the invasion of Afghanistan. So, I mean, he was pretty consistent in calling out the actions um, and policies of powerful states, regardless, you know, their, you know, where they were in the, the Cold War schema. So, I mean, imperialism is pretty, you know, equal opportunity employer in that sense that, you know, and, and Sankara really condemned all forms of imperialism, right? So, and he, so he stood against, you know, forms of aggression, you know, and that was you know, really representative of, of the, the kind of the non-aligned position that he took. Um, and, you know, he attended the non-aligned summits um, in, in New Delhi, India in 1983, when Zimbabwe and Harare in 1986, and, you know, made his powerful speeches against foreign aggression, calling for the democratization of foreign relations, for peace, you know, condemning atrocities, those sorts of things. And, um, but more close to home, I mean, there was the, in Francophone West Africa, I mean, he was, you know, equally brazen in his approach to, to uh, foreign affairs. I mean, he's routinely, you know, uh, challenging the Ivoirian president, he was kind of the, the doyen of French neocolonial power. Um, and, you know, Sankara, he, he was so much younger than the rest of these heads of state. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't willing to wait his turn. I mean, he, he, he really demanded to be respected. Um, he wanted this respect from his fellow heads of state, you know, and, you know, for that reason, I mean, he became a very polarizing figure, right? I mean, he was represented a threat to this established neocolonial order in Africa. Um, you know, and many, you know, African heads of state, you know, thought that this, this revolution uh, was calling into question, you know, their modes of, of governance. Um, and, and just, you know, beyond that, I mean, at the popular level, it, it's important, to, I think, to remember just that, that he, you know, he, he had this appeal to the African youth, right, that just exploded during this time. And, and so it meant that, you know, neighboring Francophone heads of state just, you know, they, 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 they simply couldn't ignore the revolution that he was leading. So, I mean, young people were really drawn to his, his charisma, you know, his kind of populist style, you know, and they loved like the kind of unbridled attacks on the establishment, you know, and, and everywhere, you know, he went, you'd have these massive crowds of, of young people to be coming out to see him, to hear him speak. 
Um, and he was really raising the hopes of, you know, many young Africans because, you know, he embodied, you know, their aspirations you know, for political change. You know, at a time, most Africans um, were living under repressive political systems, you know, and there are a few, you know, signs on the horizon that there would be change. And so, and so that was, you know, part of the, the anti-imperialism that, that I think, um, you know, was reflected in sort of the attitude and the aspirations of ordinary people. And, you know, and he, you know, he wanted to, his, he wanted his country to be treated on equal footing. You know, he didn't, wasn't going to bow down. He wasn't going to genuflect to his political elders. Um, and he, you know, he held the view that, that every country was you know, free to choose relations with any other without interference, without pressure. And, and so, you know, he cultivated relations with countries, you know, that were oftentimes viewed you know, with suspicion you know, by Western governments, you know, like, Cuba, Nicaragua, you know, obviously Ghana, Jerry Rawlings, and to some extent North Korea and Libya, at least at the beginning. Um, and so he identified, you know, with that sort of international left. Um, and in many ways, it sort of cost him some political capital in terms of, you know, ties to North Korea and Libya, most importantly. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and he was certainly fearless um, kind of with his international platform. Can you elaborate further on some of uh, his most significant, like, diplomatic moments um, where he used international stages to advance the cause of anti-imperialism? And can you also tell us about uh, uh, just, like, networks of Western surveillance and anti-communism that sought to undermine his revolution? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, his, I think, I mean, one thing's important, too, is just, like, his diplomatic, um, moves, you know, his, um, statements and travels and all that. I mean, they, they took on a huge importance, um, um, because in 1983, Burkina Faso was elected as a, uh, non-permanent member of the UN security council for two years. Um, and so that was just, you know, he didn't, that was just chance, you know, it was just coincidence that, that, that Burkina was, took that position and, um, was given that position, voted in. And, and so in that role, then he had these two years of just very high profile, uh, travels and statements. So, um, you know, Sankara, he then, he could use that to support certain causes, to, you know, oppose certain things, the UN General Assembly. And it's actually a pretty powerful position for such a small country because these members, you know, they have a lot of responsibility and they can really influence, um, you know, Security Council decisions, you know, with these um, legally binding resolutions and such. Um, and then that overlapped with uh, a one-year term when he was the, the chairman of SEAO, which is the Economic uh, Community of West Africa. So, and again, that was just by chance that he occupied these two important positions. And, and then from his position at SAO, then he started getting involved in, you know, really battling transnational uh, corruption in Francophone West Africa. So you had this small country, Burkina Faso, um, that really lacked uh, diplomatic and economic clout. And yet it had this outsized influence on international affairs uh, during that time. And, and so he had this platform where he could really get his message out there. Uh, you know, for example, at the UN General Assembly, you know, he gave this incredibly important speech on October 4th, 1984. And it's a very anti-imperialist speech, you know, and he went through a litany of you know, ongoing forms of uh, foreign aggression, aligning himself with liberation movements, you know, defending Nicaragua and Cuba, you know, attacking the apartheid regime in South Africa and so on. Um, uh, in other cases, you know, like his speech in Addis Ababa, the OAU meeting, and this is in July 1987, he took his famous stand against debt repayment. Um, and, you know, some of these statements I mean, and these arguments he'd been making for years, right, at least going back to 1984. And, but, you know, his hope was that African countries and the broader 
uh, global South countries would, you know, they'd come together to form this kind of uh, united front to oppose debt repayment. Um, I mean, uh, you, know, you know, many African countries you know, going back into early 1970s, at least, had been you know, desperate uh, for cash. And so they signed up for these loans, you know, at ridiculous interest rates, uh, 20% or something. And, and, and so these countries got just pulled more and more into this vicious cycle of indebtedness. And that the third world debt crisis and more of these poor countries, they just couldn't repay their debt. So, so and many of them had already actually paid off the principal, right? But, you know, through the, the miracle of compound interest, they were now supposed to pay, you know, repay like three to four times the original amount. And that meant, you know, basically being stuck in this kind of debt peonage, you know? So, so Sankara, you know, he pointed out the moral hypocrisies of all that, you know, that the IMF was making the argument that, you know, repaying the debts was a moral thing to do. And, you know, he responded, hey, you know, well, the rich and the poor need two versions of the Bible and the Quran then, because clearly they are operating according to different systems of morality. And, you know, he really made the point that these debts went back to colonialism, you know, and that poor countries had been you know, kind of ensnared in indebtedness and they couldn't repay their debts, you know, and that insisting that they do, that would just simply lead them into further, you know, financial ruin and even starvation. So, um, you know, and he gave many of these kind of iconic speeches, I mean, whether it was on you know, the environment, drawing attention to climate change, or women's rights, um, you know, and, and so, and so there were concerns about that, you know, obviously, you know, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, the capitalist system, uh, the United States, France, I mean, they, neighboring African countries, I mean, they sort of came together to try to oppose the revolution. Um, and, you know, what I've seen in, in U.S. documents and, and interviews is, was this, this pattern of like French intervention then against the Sankara regime. And so they sought to, you know, to destabilize, you know, the revolution, you know, operating mainly through their, their clients in West Africa, mainly through Cote d'Ivoire and, and Togo and Mali. And, you know, and the French government, I mean, they, you know, considered military intervention at a certain point to remove Sankara. Um, and they you know, were concerned about the contagion of the revolution, about uh, things like expansion of Libyan influence in, in the region. And those, those concerns were shared, you know, with the United States. Um, and, you know, the French government was, you know, involved behind the scenes in Mali's war with Burkina Faso in 1985. There many efforts, uh, attempts at coups, you know, uh, within the country perpetrated by anti anti-Sankara faction was based in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and, and then eventually they decided to try to engineer an interim coup, right? Um, and that was via Kofwe Boigny and, and Blaise Compare. Compare was enticed by this beautiful young woman, um, Chantal, the Ivoirian president's um, goddaughter. And, and soon, you know, Compare was married into this sort of wealthy Ivoirian family. And, you know, Compare had grown up poor, you know, he was orphaned by he was a teenager. He basically became part of Sankara's family, and and the two men had been like brothers. And so now, you know, Kampari saw this new path, you know, a path of opulence, of wealth, um, and and so, you know, that was the linkage between um, you know the the efforts of of, of uh, French neocolonial establishment to hold on to control um, in the region. And I mean, I don't see. France, you know, engineering the overthrow from a, like a military standpoint, I, I mean, the French didn't need to do that, um, but they created the conditions in which the coup was more likely. Um, and you see that like as a kind of a slow developing economic coup. Um, and, you know, like for example, a couple months before Sankara's overthrow, France decided to withdraw financial support. And they'd actually been kind of whittling away at aid. They've been following what the Americans were doing in terms of 
you know, like Reagan had set these political conditions for all U.S. foreign aid. And so they just were cutting a you know, slice at a time until finally it was just whittled down to almost nothing, right, in, in response to bad political behavior, you know, um, revolutionary rhetoric, those kinds of things. And so France started doing the same thing by at least 1985. And then by, you know, uh, 1987, um, they just withdrew financial support. And that made up about 30 to 40 percent of the CNR's budget because, you know, Sankara couldn't go to complete economic sovereignty i mean you can't just flip a switch and be autonomous it would take many many years to sort of you know wean themselves from french support right but now they just pulled the rug out from under you know, pulled the economic plug on the cnr and so now sankar's government was dealing with this extreme uh, budget shortfall and so that kind of pressure i mean it started to, to expose fissures you know within the cnr leadership uh in these different military factions and people like Campoire, for example who were now you know so the so the, the the leadership was now divided between you know the pro Campari and uh, pro Sankara factions, um, and increasingly you know Campari is the, the balance is tipping in his favor because of his control over the military, um, and so you know that was you know one of the ways in which they they were able to do that is to is and also to um, to manipulate things via other channels intelligence and military channels um, which were all over. French, uh, the French kind of, you know, the tentacles of influence were all over the place because they had so many African soldiers who had trained in, in military schools, French military schools. And the U.S. similarly used aid as leverage and also um, contacts via, um, uh, you know, soldiers who had been trained in, in U.S. institutions. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you've told, you've told us and shown us how, yeah, Western governments created the conditions um, for the coup to occur. And you pretty much walked us up to that moment. So let's talk about that. Um, Sankara is tragically assassinated um, in, in a coup on October 15, 1987. Um, does this moment mark the end of the revolution? Um, so that's the first question. And then the second question is, uh, what can we take away from Sankara's legacy? Um, and just the idea of, or this moment of revolutionary Burkina Faso, um, when we think about it alongside other uh, revolutions in history? Mm-hmm. I was a great question. And, um, you know, after the assassination of Sankara, um, Kampar, I mean, he, you know, restored the privileges of the political class. You know, he opened up you know, avenues for self-enrichment, for example. Um, the war on corruption was over. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, the neo-colonial interests were restored. You know, relations with France were a reset, you know. Um, you know, power was consolidated. We know, you know, obviously Campari would now stay in power for the next 27 years. Uh, he would eliminate his remaining rivals. And then, you know, the beginnings of um, so-called democratization in this country in the 1990s, and he would just further cement his power via you know, fraudulent elections and such. So for most Burkinabe, the revolution ended, you know, with Sankara's death. Um, and I think that, you know, to the legacy question, I mean, I I think that the premature death, I think that it, it it actually reinforced his legacy in a way because, you know, he never gave up on his ideals, right? I mean, he, um, you know, he was, people knew that he was using his position power to fight um, uh, for them, you know, for Pete, for the people, you know, nothing else. I mean, you know, and, and, um, he knew that he was going to be killed. That's clear. Um, but it didn't stop him from fighting for what he believed in. You know, he didn't sell out, right? He stayed true to his core, uh, core values. And I mean, it's true. I mean, toward the end, you know, he started to call a couple months before he was killed. He called for like a pause in the revolution, sort of a rectification, as, as the, the phrase that was used. 
you know, he saw the revolution was kind of getting too far ahead of the people and he, he acknowledged the errors, right? He tried to correct things, but it was just too late. I mean, Campari, you know, he took advantage of the situation before Sankara could kind of turn the corner and, and, you know, you know, but aside from that, that effort to kind of pause, to reconsider, to reform a little bit, you know, he went down fighting. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you have this late Cold War revolution um, that really had so many of, you know, like the hallmarks or features of a uh, progressive revolution. You know, you think about the, the history of revolutions leading up to the 1980s, you know, you had you know, land reform, peasant revolts, you had, going back to Haiti, for example, you know, the ending of slavery, right? Revolutions, you know, were, were constantly evolving over t- time and adding new features and, and, and issues, right? And so you get to the 80s, you have a whole slate of things, right? So you have this, you know, kind of progressive agenda, right? Economic inequality, you know, fighting corruption, women's rights, you know, grassroots uh, democratization, the environment, right? Climate change you were talking about, opposing uh, neocolonial control, uh, building solidarity with liberation movements around the world. Uh, opposing neoliberal reforms, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, you know, Sankar didn't give up on those. I mean, he showed flexibility at times, but he didn't abandon his core values. And I, and I, so I think his legacy as, you know, a man of integrity, I mean, it's, it's absolutely accurate. Right? I mean, there've been very few political leaders in history who have, who's true, truly embodied their ideals and died fighting for them, you know, and, and he made plenty of errors along the way. Right. And, but they were not errors like in the interest of self-enrichment. Right, or self-aggrandizement as a leader, or the consolidation of power, right? You know, fighting to stay in power against the world of people. You know, so that I mean, you know, is is all true. And and then this was a, a mostly a bloodless revolution right? compared to other revolutions, right? It was a revolution with very little violence, with the exception, you know, major exception, Sankara's own murder. But yeah, so I see his legacy in that light as, as a man of integrity who really had the courage to fight against these forms of oppression until until the end. Well, on that note, I just strongly encourage um, everyone who is listening to this to read um, to read this book and to learn about Thomas Sankara, um, to learn about Revolutionary Burkina, um, and you know, see how we can apply these lessons to the problems that we have today. Um, before I have one more question for you before we go. Um, uh, are you able to share with us what you're working on now, what your next project is? Yeah, I mean, I I'd really want to spend more time writing about Sankara. I mean, I it I just feel like mm. writing a book and spending the last ten years um, working on this project, it's it's hard to kind of let it go. It just it I don't know if that means you know more articles just to kind of examine specific aspects like of his political thought, for example. Maybe a second book focusing on certain issues. Maybe just on the assassination, or maybe maybe on his political thought. Um, yeah, I really want to do that. Um, I I have a couple of the projects that I'm thinking about. Um, I mean. The most important is just a, something dealing with the Sahel drought of the 1980s. You know, I wanted to to revisit the 1980s and the Sahel drought, and you know, kind of place in the context of, of of mobility, and you know, and I see that as more of an environmental history project, looking at uh, you know, responses to the Sahel drought, and that you know, range from you know local responses to regional and international responses. Um, so yeah, but I mean, I, I see myself working on Sankara for for a while longer. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's incredibly important. Well, yeah, I would love to see both of those projects in print. Uh, definitely more, um, more work um, and articles on Sankara. That would be tremendously um, useful. Um, so it's uh, Dr. Peterson, I have really enjoyed speaking with you today. Um, and I want to thank you for being on the show. 
um, and for sharing with us your new book, Thomas Sankara, A Revolutionary in Cold War Africa.